Welcome to 100 Things I'll Miss When I'm Dead. I'm Michael Koval Anderson. Welcome to my happy place, my podcast where I self-medicate against my constant overthinking and anxiety about my own mortality with tiny happy pills of positivity and reflection. Number 72, kissing. I love kissing. I really do. Proper kissing. You know, making out, sucking face. But also the culture of cheek kisses prevalent in countries like France and other Latin countries. I like how there are different functions for kissing. Intimacy with sexual overtones. Friendship, greetings, and goodbyes. Kissing your kids affectionately. You name it. I like how there is no uniformity to how many cheek kisses are the norm in one culture or another. Even in France, it varies from two to even four kisses. I think I heard about a place with five, depending on the region. But this cheek kissing is said to have started only in the 15th or 16th century. I spent a lot of time working in Paris during the pandemic, and it was so tough for the French to forego the cheek kiss and instead elbow or fist bump their heads cocked forward until they remembered that kissing wouldn't fly in a COVID world. It got less awkward later in the pandemic, but it still remained weird. In the Nordic countries, I lament that we stick to handshakes and quick, firm hugs. Come on, man. It is our mouth. It is incredibly intimate to kiss. In romantic situations, it's a test. It sets the mood and it's the gatekeeper to further physical escapades, if you're lucky. Trying on clothes to see if they fit, in a way. The first kiss is always exciting. You have to figure out when to do it, to make the move, as it were, with all the risk of rejection built in. But once you're there, it is splendid. It seems like such a natural thing for humans to do. But I've learned that the anthropological jury is out about whether kissing is instinctual or learned behavior. Some animals do it including the bonobo monkeys, who are our closest relatives. But some scientists think that it's learned, having evolved from activities like suckling or a parent chewing food before giving it to a small child, like birds do. One guy shows up at every turn when you explore the history of kissing. Christopher Neurop, a Danish writer who lived in the 19th century. He wrote a book called The Kiss and Its History, and so many articles on the internet still reference it, even though more Academics are working on the topic than ever before. Kind of wild that he is still such an expert after more than a century and a half. Although what he didn't know then was that only 90% of the world population engage in kissing. There are 10% of us who simply don't, for various reasons. Some cultures refrain from it because they find it dirty, which, with 298 colonies of bacteria in our mouths, it actually might be. In parts of Sudan, they believe that the mouth is the portal to the soul, so they prefer not to invite death or have their spirit taken. Early European explorers found that kissing didn't exist in some regions in Asia and the Pacific, and they introduced it into these cultures. This is an argument that kissing is a learned behavior. But me? Ha! Let's make out. Suck face, smooch, neck, snog, osculate, swap spit, pash, peck, play tonsil tennis. I am ready to use my 34 facial muscles and my 112 postural muscles to make it happen. That's how dedicated I am. Especially the most important of them, the orbicularis oris muscle. 
which helps you pucker up. The lips have so many nerve endings, and that makes them so incredibly sensitive. Add the tongue and the French kiss to the equation, and there are even more nerve endings to stimulate. While 90% of humans kiss, there are still many cultures where doing it in public is frowned upon, and most of them have a strong religious influence. But even the Americans have certain limits, and they had to make up the phrase PDA, Public Display of Affection, in order to describe kissing in public. I remember when I was making out on a street in Miami just a few years back and some dude shouted from a passing car, PDA, get a room, dude. When you're from Europe, <laughs> that's just weird. Although, when you think about it, I guess kissing is as close as you can get to having sex in public without actually having sex in public. Do you remember your first kiss? Mine was in the sixth grade. Her name was Laura Lee. We were playing truth and dare, and her friends dared me to kiss her. She was firmly in the driver's seat, believe me, and I was the awkward one. Nothing more than a couple of pecks, but yeah, that carved itself into the stone of my memory bank. In seventh grade came the first wet and sloppy makeout session with a girl named Marianne. I was hooked, but she was also firmly in control of the situation. Girls your own age when you're young are, of course, far more mature than us stupid boys. She instigated it, and I responded happily. I was a bit shy at that age, and she knew it, so she led the way, even asking matter-of-factly, do you want to put your hand up my sweater and down my pants? Um, <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah. I also like kissing when having sex. I've been surprised through the years to discover that not everyone digs it. Some kisses, sure, but not everyone wants a whole bunch of making out while having sex. For me, it's all part of the same event. And if I'm with someone who doesn't share the same enthusiasm for it, it always feels like something is missing. But just a little bit. Kissing produces hormones that put us in a good mood, like oxytocin, which releases the feeling of love and strengthens the bond, as well as endorphins and dopamine, activating the pleasure center in our brain. Kissing reduces stress, and studies have shown that daily kissing in a relationship, not just a little peck on your way to work, but a good open-mouth kiss, helps maintain the bond between a couple by increasing relationship satisfaction and even lowering cholesterol levels. There are so many good reasons to kiss. I am going to miss it when I'm dead. Although, <laughs> talking to you now, I miss it this very minute. Number 73 orgasms. Yep, gonna miss them when I'm dead. And you know what? I ain't shy about it. Come on, if you've ever had one, you want more. According to medical professionals, the definition of an orgasm is the highest point of sexual excitement characterized by strong feelings of pleasure and marked normally by ejaculation of semen by the male and by involuntary vaginal contractions in the female. Orgasms are also just pretty damn awesome. Big fan. If you recall the segment about spreadsheets, well, I've spent far too much time one day trying to estimate how many I've had in my life. I calculated around 11,000. And counting, of course. What a wild thing for humans to have developed through evolution. An amazing feeling of well-being and ecstasy released in a perfect storm of chemicals and hormones, all in order to simply reward us for having sex and encourage us to do it again. There is a wide variety of orgasms, varying in intensity. There are the routine ones, 
There are the ones when you're in love and that cocktail of chemicals in your brain and body boost the whole affair. Then there are those when you are actively trying to get pregnant with your partner. That is next level. Then there are the ones when you've been smoking pot or doing other drugs, and the list goes on. They're all so very different. The male orgasm exists for a simple reason, in order to ejaculate semen. Functional pleasure. What I think is fantastic is seeing so much research over the past decade or so into the more complex world of the female orgasm. Science has neglected it for so long, and it's fascinating to follow the developing research into this topic. As a man, it is so interesting to try and wrap your head around it. The orchestra of physical, emotional, and mental elements that need to fall into place for many women makes it so mysterious to men, for whom it's incredibly easy, as we know. Although it is estimated that 10% of women will never achieve orgasm in their life. With all the research going on, I'm sure that this is a topic that many are focusing on and trying to figure out, along with all the other complexities. Here's a book recommendation for you. It is, quite seriously, one of the most interesting books I've read about anthropology and human sexuality. It's called Sex at Dawn, How We Mate, Why We Stray, and What It Means for Modern Relationships by Christopher Ryan and Casilda Jetha, both anthropologists. It is a wonderfully provocative book that challenges the conventional wisdom about sex and sexuality. Basically, it throws a bomb under the bus of everything we've been led to believe, that humans are monogamous. It spells out and exposes the fallacies and weaknesses of standard theories that have been around for decades, if not centuries. And, not surprisingly, religion is behind these fallacies. Spinning the monogamy angle was handy as a control mechanism. People would stay together and have kids and do jobs and just generally keep out of trouble. When we started to realize that humans evolved from apes, we all started to be taught that chimpanzees are our closest relatives. I learned it at school, like so many others. You probably did too. They are just like us, but they can also be violent. That is the biggest similarity. What happened, though, was that back then, scientists knew that the bonobo monkeys are actually closer to humans. Ah, but the awkward problem was that the bonobos, they like to have sex all the time. They use it for bonding, but also to defuse violent encounters in the tribe before they escalate. But that was all too awkward to communicate to people back in the day, so chimpanzees stepped in to cover up that awkwardness. This book shows us that humans are actually wired differently. In it, there are chapters wherein they discuss the function of the female orgasm. More often than not, women are much more vocal than men during sex. The book explains that this might be in order to call more males over, in order to maximize the chance of pregnancy as well as stronger sperm cells. It's not a newsflash that women have been treated like second-class citizens for millennia, and the constructed shame about female sexuality has been a key element. Luckily, we are emerging, maybe a bit too slowly, but from the darkness. Finally, the book also has great passages about matriarchal societies in history, and also today. Generally, an amazing, informative read. That we developed kissing is a great advance in human societies. That we evolved to be able to achieve one of the greatest gifts in the history of the human race. The orgasm is just next level awesome. Number 74. Swearing. I'm told I swear a lot. Not really a newsflash. I know I do, but sometimes I'm not aware of how much. I'm aware that the listeners of this podcast, however, have been largely spared so far. 
I live in a country without any real censorship. I can, and have, sworn on the national news. Nobody blinked an eye. I can't recall any Dane ever saying to me, hey, can you stop swearing in the middle of a conversation? Without having a spreadsheet dedicated to it, it seems like it's mostly Americans who will say something like that. But then, they also come from a culture that has that weird bleep thing going on. What the f*** is actually going on there? The American comedian George Carlin famously listed the seven words you can't say on American broadcast television back in 1972. They're known as the seven dirty words. He found it bizarre that you can't say them. This is what he said about it. These words have no power. We give them this power by refusing to be free and easy with them. We give them great power over us. They really, in themselves, have no power. It's the thrust of the sentence that makes them either good or bad. The American Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, and yeah, sorry, that just sounds like something right out of Orwell's 1984, they've consistently tried to regulate human language and they can issue indecency warnings if a broadcaster steps over the line decided by, yeah, the FCC. I just really find it weird that words invented by humans for use by humans can be censored. That someone can decide what people can or cannot say because, as is usually the case, some religion stuck their nose in at some point and influenced all this stuff. I really don't like censorship. And I feel bad for people who have to live in a place that has it. Seriously. And I have a hard time when someone says... Ha, can you please stop swearing? Um, no. <laughs> Why should I? You know, generally, but also culturally. Although I had a bit of fun once when a young American in a social setting while I was in the States asked me to stop swearing. The fuck is actually fucking going on there? And I just said, um, I'm sorry, but no. Like, it's a Nordic word, and it's completely accepted in my culture. And it would feel strange to cancel a linguistic element from my culture. I got the response I was hoping for. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry, but that was fucking funny. The etymology of the word fuck is much discussed. The main problem is that the word was taboo for a very long time, so tracing its origins is difficult. The word fuck wasn't in a single English language dictionary from 1795 to 1965. But one of the theories is that it originates in the Nordic languages, possibly from Norwegian dialectal fuka, which means to copulate, or Swedish dialectal foka, which means to copulate or to strike or push, and fok, F-O-C-K, which means penis. From merely being taboo, it was outlawed in print in England by the Obscene Publications Act of 1857 and in the U.S. by the Comstock Act of 1873. The word continued in common speech, though. Huh, of course it did. Resistance to using the word in print faded in the 20th century. The word was, in a small way, liberated. Actually, all the variations, like fuck all, fuck off, well, fuck me, fuck wit, fuck up, they are all from the last century. As an extension of my segment on people watching, I like to test stuff. When I'm on stage giving a keynote, I might throw out a fuck or a shit just for emphasis. But then I love to watch the reaction from the audience. 
a few hundred serious-looking Germans, it surprises them. <laughs> Many people smile because, you know what, they did not expect that. Canadians, yeah, they just laugh and roll with it. Eastern European audiences get a kick out of it. The Brits really have no issue with it at all. I know that if there is an interpreter, because I'm being translated, they will often choose a softer word in their own language instead of the one that corresponds in linguistic strength. But the recognizability factor of the word fuck is pretty international. So the audience heard it anyway. In a long section of conversation where I'm speaking passionately, I can hear the sharp percussion of my swearing, especially the fucks. And that word, man, it is an all-time favorite. Four simple letters. But really, only three, since the K and the C do the same thing. But three consonants and only one vowel, and yet you can do so much with it. It is amazingly flexible. Think about it. Fuck. Hard and heavy on the consonants. A thwap on the knuckles with a ruler. And then there's f <laughs> Soft as you like. The F is gentle and the word is like a gust of summer wind. The consonants are reduced to mere suggestion. Fuck. A mix of the two. F. Uck. You bookend some undefined vowel with heavy emphasis on the consonants. Fuck you. Soft. Fuck you. Hard. And then think about the difference between a fuck me whispered in an ear and a fuck me growled with intensity in the bedroom. You get the picture. Such an amazingly versatile word. Shit has the same versatility. Shit. Shit. In comparison, the C word, and yes, I am self-censoring there. While the word has largely been liberated in the UK and Australia, and you can hear it regularly in public, it's probably the word that freaks North Americans out the most. But that word doesn't have the same broad spectrum of pronunciation, even though it follows that three consonant and a vowel form. I just find that interesting. Now, of course, we use words freely today that were unacceptable in previous generations. Even words that mean little today were shocking. My mom married my dad in 1947 in England, and then they moved back to Denmark. They were on a train journey once, with my uncle there as well, and the train stopped in a Danish town. The town name was on a sign on the platform as they waited. My dad tapped my mom's shoulder and pointed at the sign, saying, Look, we're in Middlefart. My mom went bright red in the face and immediately said, Don't say that! My dad and my uncle, they kept at it. I like middle fart, don't you? Oh yes, middle fart is lovely this time of the year. Ah, the train is leaving middle fart now. They were having a laugh. My mom also laughed when she told me about it years later. But she was a prim and proper English girl back then, and the word fart ranked equally with all the other bad words. Kind of wild to think about today. Foreigners driving in Denmark must get confused when they see large signs on motorways that read fart control which just means a reduced speed area. Or, on older elevators, the words, I fart, <laughs> below a little bit. Sorry, it's still funny, even though I'm saying it, Ren. On older elevators, the words, I fart, below a little green or red light, which simply means, in operation. On the flip side of that story about middle fart, my dad joined the British Army in 1946 and went to the UK. His name, in Danish, was Vilu, which, if you spelled it, is W-I-L-L-Y. Willy. British slang for penis. His fellow British soldiers simply wouldn't call him that. It was just too racy. And these guys were soldiers. You'd think it was the perfect name to call somebody. 
But again, it was 1946. Instead, they dubbed my dad Andy, based on Anderson, in order to avoid any awkwardness with Willie. Then there's a town called fucking Austria, who recently changed their name because people kept stealing the sign at the entrance to the town, and generally, too many tourists were showing up for all the wrong reasons. Most of this segment, so far, is about the English language, but it's another source of endless fascination to me how other languages swear. In Danish, most of the swear words are rooted in religion. God, Satan, hell, stuff like that. In Dutch, from what I remember, it's often religion, but also illnesses like cancer and tuberculosis. In the French they speak in Quebec, it's largely the things in a church, like the chalice, the tabernacle, or, you know, the host. Then, of course, there are the cultures where swear words involving a mother are the most grave. Latin countries, and the Middle East. In a culture like the Danish, where swearing elicits zero reaction, it shouldn't be surprising to know that kids swear freely as well. (laughs) Mine certainly do. When we go to North America, I always give them a heads up. Remember, kids, people over here aren't Danish, and they sure aren't used to kids swearing. My kids are good at remembering it, and especially good at only using Danish swear words which are unintelligible to others. Within the past few years, a couple of studies came out suggesting that swearing is something that intelligent people do. I wonder how many people who swear and who do it happily were quick to point out that science when it hit the headlines, including me. And so, I am just going to leave that right fucking there. You've been listening to 100 Things I'll Miss When I'm Dead. I'm Michael Kobel Anderson. Thanks for being out there. <laughs>